Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Acts, the second chapter, where my Bible is opened up to, and I'll invite you to get a Bible opened up to Acts chapter 2 as well. We're only going to need five different passages this morning, and so that ought to make it easy for everybody to, to keep up and to follow along. But let's all be looking at those passages together as we work in the Word of God over the course of these next few minutes. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. It is great to see everybody this morning. I am so glad to see you and to be with you and to worship with you on this first day of the week. You know, I often say that Sunday is my favorite day of the week, and it is. Uh, and that even includes that one Sunday out of the year where we have to do that spring forward thing. And so even with one less hour of sleep, I'm going to say that there is no place that I would rather be than right here in the assembly of God's people, worshiping and praising the King on the Lord's Day. I'm eager to be about the business of God's Word, and I hope that you are as well. In Acts chapter 2, let's read, After hearing the preaching of the gospel for the very first time on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 tells us that that assembly, that gathering of people on that day, they responded in this way, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me begin this morning by doing a little bit of math. Anybody interested in doing a little bit of math? Math was never my favorite subject in school, but I'd like to do a little bit of math. I realize that we're not here to do reading and writing and arithmetic, but let's work on a little math problem to get our gears going in the direction that I'd like for us to be thinking this morning. Let's do a little simple addition problem. What is 53 plus 37? 53 plus 37. Anybody? Anybody? 53 plus 37? 90, very good. Thank you very much. That was, that was pretty quick, wasn't it? That was pretty easy. 53 plus 37 is 90. I can remember in second grade, third grade, standing in front of the chalkboard and the teacher having that arithmetic problem written up on the board. And all you got to do, it's pretty easy. You take the 3 and the 7, that makes 10. Drop the 0, carry the 1. 1 plus 5 is 6. 6 plus 3 is 9. Drop the 9. 9 zero, 90. Hey, bang, bang, we got it. That was pretty easy. 53 plus 37, that's 90. That... That's pretty simple, isn't it? I appreciate the simplicity in which you're able to work through a problem in that way. Well, as simple as that is, it is remarkable to me just how complicated that very same arithmetic problem is for many students today. Because thanks to common core math, what was once straightforward and clear and simple, it is now, it's now whatever that is. I don't even know how to explain that. I'm sure that when my child starts school next year, I'm going to begin to learn what all those numbers and squiggles and lines, what all of that means. In the meantime, some of our young people, they're going to have to walk me through and explain how all of that works. Because when I look at that, I can't help but think that somebody took something that was really easy and really simple and they made it more difficult and more complicated than it needed to be. 
Now, I'm not here this morning to debate the merits or the drawbacks of the Common Core math system. In fact, I'm sure there's maybe some educators here who might stand on the side of there's some good intentions there and there's some good reasons behind all of that. But I share that with you simply because I think it well illustrates a problem that so often prevents people from obeying God's Word. Would you agree with me that generally speaking... God's instructions are clear and straightforward and direct and simple. Would you agree with me on that? That's not to say that there are not difficult commands in the Bible. There are. And that's certainly not to say that there aren't passages in the Bible that are harder to understand. That absolutely is the case. But in the main, I think we would all agree that what God has commanded, it is simple to understand and it is simple to do. Like, for example, that verse that we just read in Acts chapter 2 in verse 38. Because there, in response to a question about salvation, the Apostle Peter gave what I consider to be incredibly simple instructions. He told those people on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That, that's pretty simple, isn't it? That is not on the level of common core math in my estimation. No, that's, that's basic math. I am persuaded that anybody could hear those instructions. Anybody could read that passage. They could understand it and then do it. It is that simple. Here's my question then. Why isn't everybody doing that? Why has everybody not been convicted of their sins the way that these people were in Acts chapter 2 and then done what Acts 2 verse 38 says to do in order to be saved? Let me make that even more specific. Why hasn't everybody in this room this morning done what Acts 2 verse 38 says? What exactly is the hang-up there? This is not some physically impossible task like bench press 8,497 pounds. This is not some ridiculously difficult task like raise $58 million in the next 24 hours. No, this is repent, turn away from sin and turn to the Lord, and be baptized, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That is simple to understand. In fact, it's even more simple to do. My question is, why aren't more people doing that? Well, I believe in many cases the answer to that is that people have taken something that is very simple in theory and in concept and they've complicated it. Here's something that God designed and something that God intended to be clear, to be to the point that requires just simple obedience. And yet somewhere along the way, people have taken that, they've twisted it, they've worked with it, they've contorted it, they've confounded it, and they've made it difficult. Well, this morning, I want to talk about why that is. I want to talk about some of the kinds of things that end up complicating simple obedience. In fact, that expression, simple obedience, that's really going to be a key idea that I'm going to keep stressing this morning. And the way that I want us to go about looking at that this morning is I want to go with you through the Bible. And I want to share with you three cases in Scripture where someone was commanded by God to do something simple... And yet somewhere along the way, they got a little hitch in their giddy-up. These are some cases where some things should have been easy, should have been really simple to do, 
But some things got in the way. Or at least there was the danger of some things getting in the way and making it complicated. And as we extract those three ideas this morning, I want you to know exactly where all of that is going. Because there's lots of directions I could take this sermon. There's lots of applications that we can make from this lesson, but I want to keep things very tightly focused. Because this morning, I want to connect all three of these principles right back to that verse in Acts 2, verses 37 and 38. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you done that? And I want to be clear when I ask, have you done that? I'm not asking, were you baptized as a baby? I'm not asking, were you baptized because a whole bunch of other people were being baptized? I'm not asking, were you baptized to join join a church or a religious institution? No, I'm asking, Acts 2.38, have you repented and been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? And if not, why is that so hard to do? Let's see if this morning, if maybe we can pinpoint some of those reasons for why that simple command oftentimes gets complicated. And I want to begin that in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5. In 2 Kings chapter 5, this is passage number 2 this morning. In 2 Kings chapter 5, if you were here on Wednesday night, you got to hear our brother Dylan deliver an excellent invitation from 2 Kings chapter 5 about a man who was having some trouble with simple obedience. I'm reading here, of course, about the man named Naaman. In 2 Kings chapter 5, look in verse 1. Here's his predicament. 2 Kings 5 verse 1. Now Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. A leper. You need to know that in biblical times, that was absolutely a death sentence. This man does not have a bad case of acne. This man does not have a really bad rash. No, leprosy meant that Naaman was going to die. And in fact, he was going to die in a terrible and horrible way. The stakes could not be any higher for him. Thankfully, though, word gets to him that there's somebody who can help. There's a prophet of the Lord nearby. And he can actually provide the cleansing and the help that Naaman needs. And so we're told about this man, Elisha, that Naaman goes to him. 2 Kings 5, drop down to verse 9 now. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be Clean. What's that sound like to you? To me, that sounds like something pretty simple. In fact, best I can tell, there's just two things here. You need to go to the Jordan River, and then number two, you need to wash seven times. That is not hard. There is nothing about that that is complicated or difficult at all. And yet, verse 11 says this, But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me. And that he would stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? What's the problem here? Problem is, we've got a simple command, but we see it's being complicated by not having simple obedience followed. 
Despite the fact that Naaman does not need a theologian standing right there to interpret the words of the prophet, Naaman does not need some kind of a special code to decipher what his word mean and try to find some kind of secret meaning behind it. Elisha is not speaking in parables. He's not speaking in metaphors in any sort of way. Yet despite all of that, Naaman is struggling with obedience. And why? I think verse 11 tells us why. Behold, I thought. There it is. I thought. Naaman arrived at Elisha's house that day with prejudices and preconceived notions. It didn't go the way that he thought it was going to go. You know, I was just certain that this is the way that it was going to go. And you know what? That's not what happened at all. It was totally different than the way that I had figured in my mind. Naaman's expectations did not meet reality, did they? For example, verse 11, he says that I thought that there would be more show to this. There'd be more pomp and more circumstance here. I thought that Elisha would come out and he'd he'd cry out to the heavens. And he'd wave his hands over me and maybe even say some magic words or something. But instead, he just sent a messenger out. And the messenger gives me these instructions in about the most bland and ordinary way possible. Furthermore, in verse 12, I've got a lot better ideas about where we can get this done. They want me to go to the Jordan River. But that's a filthy, muddy, dirty, disgusting river. There's a whole bunch of other better rivers nearby that we could go and we could get this washing thing done. All of this, it just doesn't measure up to what Naaman thought was going to happen. What it ought to be. He has prejudices. He has preconceived ideas. He's had all these things that he's kind of already decided and worked out in his mind. And as a result, it made simple obedience... Really, really complicated. And you know what? That's exactly what happens many times when it comes to obeying God in the waters of baptism. People say things all the time like, well, hey, this is, this is what my mama always said about baptism. Or, be baptized. I always thought and I always heard that baptism is a work and that you can't be saved by work. Or, you know, I've always just heard and I've always been told that that this is how you get saved. That that the Lord just comes into your heart and maybe you see a bright shining light and you just feel this, this warmness inside because you've accepted Jesus. Do you hear it? This is what I thought. This is what I figured it would be. This is the conclusion that I came to. Here's what I decided before I ever even opened up the Bible, before I ever even heard the truth of God's Word about this matter. These are my prejudgments. These are my predispositions. And because of that, something that should be really, really, really easy, it's now been made complicated. My ideas about salvation, they're now bumping up against God's ideas about salvation, and that's just creating a big log jam. Do you know what ultimately ended up happening to Naaman? Well, actually, Naaman ended up obeying. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, but his servants came near and they said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? There's some different translation issues here. Some render that first clause, this is not a hard thing to do. So why don't you do it? Others like the ESV render it. This is a great word that's been spoken with the implication being, this is doable. This is very doable. It's simple. Just go do it. Verse 14. So Naaman went down 
And he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. and He was clean. The common sense of Naaman's servants, these are good friends. Their common sense said, Naaman, you need to get rid. You need to chuck all of your preconceived ideas. This is about being healed, Naaman. This is not about you saving face. This is not about you proving that you're right. This is not about you having your way or about all that other stuff that you thought before you came here. No, this is about being cleansed. Isn't that what we want? This is about being healed. In the very same way. Isn't that ultimately what we're talking about when we talk about baptism? People can say whatever they want about baptism and what they thought that's supposed to do. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about baptism, we're talking about being cleansed. We're talking about being healed. We're talking about being forgiven of sin. That's what Acts 2 verse 38 says. We're talking about obeying the Lord and His clear instructions. Put away your prejudices. Put away your preconceived ideas and do what God says. You know what that is? That simple obedience. Maybe an example from the New Testament now will help us to think a little bit further. Would you look in the Gospel of Matthew? In Matthew the 14th chapter. In Matthew chapter 14, here's a marvelous story about simple obedience. And it involves the Apostle Peter, the guy who spoke those words in Acts 2 verse 38. In Matthew chapter 14, let's pick up this story kind of maybe a little bit in the middle here. In Matthew 14 beginning in verse 26, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, here's Jesus walking on the water, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28 now. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Verse 29. And Jesus said, Come. Now, this is a great example of clear, simple instructions. I realize that there's a lot going on in this story. And many times when we talk about this passage, we go in a bunch of other different directions. And I realize as well that when you get to verse 30, the real issue is there's a faith issue. And that, of course, ends up in Peter getting really, really wet. But the main thing that I want us to focus on is the simple command that he was given in verse 29. Jesus said, come. And this is actually a case where the guy actually ended up doing What the Lord commanded him to do. Verse 29 continues on. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. Please try as best you can and place yourself in Peter's shoes. What if the Lord had commanded you to get out of the boat and to start walking to him? There'd be some concerns there, wouldn't there? I know that I would have some immediate concerns. Uh, First of all, maybe my first concern would be about drowning. I don't know how to swim, so that would be near the top of my list. Uh, Am I going to drown? Am I going to die here? Uh, That's not an issue for Peter. Peter gets out and he walks. Notice he says, Lord, if it is you. Peter understood that who he's dealing with here, this is the Messiah. This is the very same guy that he had seen heal the sick. 
and cast out demons and feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. This is the guy that he had seen raise people from the dead. And so the idea here of him walking on the water and him enabling me to walk on the water, well, that's not going to be hard at all. I can do this if Jesus tells me to do this. That's not going to be difficult at all. But do you know what I think would, would really make this difficult? It's the fact that Peter's doing a solo here. We oftentimes talk about the apostles. The apostles do things in groups and they all go along and they do stuff together. But on this occasion, Peter is called to do a solo. Peter is the only one who is commanded to get out of that boat. And he is the only one who did get out of that boat. You want to make that ten times easier? How about commanding everybody to get out of the boat? Because when the majority of people are doing something, well, then it's a whole lot easier to just follow along, isn't it? There is strength in numbers, we oftentimes say. If everybody else is doing it, well, well, I can do that too. That's no problem if that guy's doing it and that guy's doing it. Well, yeah, I can get out there and I can do that too. And so, for example, if Jesus says, hey, all of y'all come on. I want all of y'all to get out and come to me. Well, then when John stands up, well, then that makes it really easy for Andrew to stand up. And when Bartholomew puts his leg over the rail, well, that makes it easy for Thomas to then put his leg over the rail and to step out. Makes that a whole lot easier. Hey, we're all going. We're all doing this. We're all either going to sink or we're all either going to walk on water, but we're going to do that together. That makes obedience much easier. But here's the kicker. Obedience to God is a very individualized matter. It is an individual decision. You choose to get out of the boat. In our illustration here with baptism, and the God's plan of salvation in Acts 2.38, you choose to repent. You choose to submit to baptism. You choose to do that. And let's be candid. Most people in the world today, and in fact throughout history, most people are not doing what Acts 2.38 says. The majority of folks, when it comes to salvation, they are not going to do what that passage teaches. Instead, what are most people going to do? Well, they're going to do something like maybe just pray a prayer, the sinner's prayer. Or maybe they're going to make what's referred to oftentimes as an altar call, where they just accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Or they're going to try some other kind of a faith-only, accept Christ into your heart method of salvation... But then, of course, when somebody else comes along and they say and they decide, you know what, I'm going to repent and I'm going to be baptized in order to be saved, that person, that person is very much standing against the tide. They are doing what the majority of people have not done and will not do, and that, that can make simple obedience hard. It's not difficult in Matthew chapter 14. To understand the command. The command is, come. That's pretty easy. You don't even need a definition. That requires no explanation, no interpretation. But when no one else is coming, it's a little harder to come. It's a little harder to get out of the boat. In the same way, when all of our neighbors and when all of our religious friends when they're going off in this direction, and this is how we're going to do religion, and this is how we're going to do salvation, this is the way that we're going to be saved, and then we come along and we say, well, you know, I think Acts 2.38 actually teaches something different. I think Acts 2.38 says that you need to go in this direction. In that moment, that makes it more difficult 
to just simply obey God's simple command. We know what the Lord says. We know what Acts 2.38 is calling us to do. But when everybody else is going off in a different direction, then simple obedience becomes harder because we're having to go that alone. Well, my family says, all my friends are doing, that none of my co-workers have ever, that can make obedience tough. What's really remarkable about this story in Matthew chapter 14 is that Peter, Peter ignored what everybody else was doing or not doing. Peter ignored what everybody else was saying or thinking in that moment. Peter got busy obeying the Lord. Jesus said, come. He did. He got out of the boat. Eleven other guys, they never got that far. What about you? Jesus says through His inspired apostle, repent and be baptized. There's always going to be people who won't do that. There are people in this lifetime who will choose to never do that. In fact, the majority of people that you meet will never, ever do Acts 2.38. Are you going to let their disobedience stand in the way of you rendering your simple obedience? Don't let others hinder you. Don't let others hinder you from doing what you know to be the right thing to do. Acts 2.38 is talking to you. Let me show you one more story that helps to crystallize these ideas. Go back to the Old Testament again in Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua chapter 6, this is the famous story of God's instructions for Israel concerning the capture and the seizure of the city of Jericho. Let's read a little bit and let's see what God told them to do. In Joshua chapter 6, this is verse number 1. In Joshua 6 and in verse 1, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside, Because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, we read that account, and we teach that account in Bible class, and we hardly even give it a second thought. Most of us have been hearing the story of Israel and the city of Jericho since we were little bitty kids in class. We know that. We accept that. We believe that. And we just kind of, okay, I'm good with that. And then we just move right on. But can we just pause and, and just think very practically for a second? This is not how any nation or any army would ever do military combat and military strategy. Can you imagine what Joshua must have thought in his mind when God told him, hey Joshua, this is what we're going to do. Can you imagine what the Israelites must have thought when Joshua then brought word back to them that, hey, this is what God says we're going to do. I'm sure that not a few of them thought to themselves, our leader is high on crack. Or he's crazy. Or maybe both. What do you mean we're going to march around the city? 
What's going to happen when we march around the city? Are fluffy unicorns going to come from the sky and they're going to come into Jericho and they're going to open the gates for us and we're going to then have a picnic with these folks? Is that what's going to happen here? You're crazy, Joshua. This isn't going to work. What we need to do is we need to start getting all of our siege ladders set up. And we need to be sharpening our swords. And we need to get a battering ram put together. We need to be shooting some fiery arrows over the top of that wall. This is a military campaign. This is not a parade. We need to get prepared to strike. Because this idea that God's told you and you're now telling us, this just doesn't make sense. Why would we do this? March around Jericho and then we're going to scream and shout at the walls and they're all going to fall down? Yeah, that's really going to work. That seems foolish. That seems like an utter waste of time and energy. What I want you to see is that what God commanded of the Israelites on that day, like the previous two examples, it was not complicated, not hard for them to understand. Nobody, when they heard these instructions, was saying, now, hmm, let me pull out a Hebrew lexicon and let me parse the verbs there and figure it out. Nope, none of that. In fact, this was completely safe, what God was instructing them to do. It's just, it's just marching. Just walking. We're just making laps around the walls of the city. It doesn't make sense. But God said to do it. And at its core, that is what simple obedience comes down to. God says it. Am I going to do it? Which means that for us, or for anyone... To attempt to judge God's ways by by human thinking and human rationale and human logic, that is an exercise in futility. Over and over again in the Bible and even in our lives today, God demonstrates that His ways are not our ways. They are so much higher than our ways. We cannot somehow figure God's ways out and just kind of reason it all out. And now we're going to kind of test what God says to do and use the standard of whether or not it makes sense to me. No, when we use that standard, we're going to end up in disobedience. That's Noah's story. Nobody got in the ark except Noah and his family. That's Abraham's story. Why would you sacrifice your son? That's Gideon's story. Lord, how can an army be too large? Repeatedly in Scripture, God says... This is what I want you to do. This is the way that I want you to do that. And more often than not, God's ways goes directly against what man would have thought to do. And in so doing, what that does is it just magnifies God's power and God's wisdom. And He is glorified in that. Would you look with me in Luke chapter 5? This is the last, the fifth of those passages. In Luke chapter 5, this is, this is Peter once again. Here's a guy who, before he was that preacher in Acts chapter 2, he was a professional fisherman. This guy knows about fishing. And in fact, in Luke chapter 5, he's been fishing all night long. Jesus then arrives on the scene and Jesus says, Hey boys, let's go fishing. I want you to notice and be just very appreciative of the words that Peter speaks in response to that command. In Luke chapter 5, look in verse 5. Peter answered him, Master, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing but at Your Word I will let down the nets. That's it. That is simple 
obedience. Lord, you said to do it. We're doing it. You know, sometimes when we talk with our friends about, about baptism, and we're maybe trying to feel like we're having to kind of make the case for baptism, what happens is, is many times is we want to try to get off on all these tangents where we want to, we want to help them to understand the reasons to be baptized. And we want them to understand all the rich meaning and the significance and the, the symbolism that's going on in baptism. We try to get into all of that. We, we explain to them how it's a reenactment of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 6 makes that point. We talk about with them how we're being saved by water, just like Noah and his family were saved by water. 1 Peter chapter 3 makes that connection. We do that because we want to try to help them to somehow in their mind make sense of baptism. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that's actually the wrong approach to try and persuade somebody to be baptized into Christ. Because for us to try and convince them that baptism is reasonable and that it's sensible and that it's rational, no! Absolutely! A million times no! We don't obey God because it makes sense to us. Okay, God, well, well now I get it. Okay, but now I'll do that. That's not why we obey God. If that were the case... How long would those Israelites have waited as they were marching around the walls until finally it made sense? Oh yeah, well this is why we're marching around the wall. They would have never made sense of it. What we want to help folks to do, what we want to help folks to see, is we want to help them to see and to become just like Peter here in Luke chapter 5. And that is to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Look at that word Peter uses in verse 5. He says, Master... Master, whatever you say, I'm doing it. Even if it never makes sense to me, it doesn't matter. At your word, I will obey. And you know what? Whether we or anybody else ever comes to appreciate the fullness and the richness of what's going on in baptism. And believe me, there is value in exploring that. The death, burial, and the resurrection. Being saved by water just like knowing it. Those are important ideas. Those are great things to understand and to figure out. But you know what? Even if we never figure those things out in this lifetime, or whether we do, that's irrelevant. Because what I know is this, and that is that Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That is simple... And when we have the attitude of Peter, we're going to say, At your word, Lord, I will obey. Of course, you know the end of the Joshua 6 story, don't you? Those people, they obeyed. And God ended up blessing them with the victory. And you know the end of the Luke 5 story. Peter obeyed. And the Lord blessed him and his fishing comrades with more fish than they could even imagine. The question right now is, When will you stop testing God's Word with your human reasoning and just simply obey His instructions so that you can receive the blessing of salvation? It is true that Acts 2 verse 38 is not the only passage in the New Testament that speaks about how to be saved. But i got to tell you, I am just completely impressed with the simplicity and the clarity of Peter's directions to that audience on that day. And I'm saying to you this morning, that if you have never done what those people in Acts chapter 2 did, then number one, do not let your preconceived ideas about salvation hinder you from repenting and being baptized today. 
Don't allow, secondly, what everybody else is doing or not doing and thinking or not thinking and saying or not saying to keep you from repenting and being baptized today. And furthermore, don't let your think-sos and your ideas and your opinions about the sensibleness of God's commands to prevent you from repenting and being baptized this very day. God gave His Son in order to provide you and I, not a way, but the way to be saved, to be cleansed of our sins, do not complicate something that God has made incredibly simple. Accept Him at His Word. And do that by repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins this very morning. And if we can help you in becoming obedient to the simple instructions of the Lord, then this is your moment It is your time. Take advantage of it by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.